Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Rob Fay uh, in Beaverton, Oregon, and I'm with, as usual, Roman Sivkin from Astoria, New York. And across the Willamette River is Heston Hoffman, who's doing the recording today. Um, and we have a special guest today. Um, we're really happy to uh, welcome an author uh, to join us, a little bit different than our, our usual format. Um, but before we welcome our guest, I, I did want to mention, uh, give an update to uh, folks who've listened to the podcast uh, in the past. Some of you might recall we had a translator on the show named Josh Calvo, and he uh, is a, um, uh, a PhD student at Princeton, and he is specialized in uh, Arabic and Hebrew literature uh, as a translator. And so just a, a quick update, Roman and I had a chance to uh, catch up with him. And uh, he is currently in Cairo, Egypt, uh, on a fellowship uh, doing advanced uh, Arabic studies. So I, I know that um, some of our listeners, we have some uh, Arab-speaking uh, folks, and so I thought they might uh, be interested in that. And, and Josh has also agreed to kind of um, appear on an update, uh, a future podcast, to kind of update us on you know, what his experience is um, in Egypt. And I, I know that from our, our data analytics, we also have a, a small uh, spirited uh, group of listeners in Egypt. So I thought that might be a, a, a kind of a, a neat update for everyone. But on today's podcast, we're really excited um, to have the author Greg Gerke on the show. Um, he has just uh, published um, two books, and um, we're going to be looking at uh, his book of uh, essays. And this is called See What I See. And it's published by a uh, press in the UK uh, called Splice. Uh, and it's part of their uh, Living Essays uh, series. So, uh, Greg, uh, welcome. And I believe you're dialing in from Brooklyn. Is that thank, right? Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, Park Slope. Yeah. Well, you know, we're excited to have you here um, because, you know, I think that a lot of your passions and the things, the writers that you're interested in kind of intersect a bit with, uh, you know, the writers and the themes and the ideas that uh, Roman and I are kind of obsessed with. And and you're also, um, as a nice twist, you're also have written quite a bit about film. Uh, and in particular, uh, Bergman. And I, you know, Roman and I have known each other for a number of years, and we were very young when we started watching some of the Bergman films. And so those really uh, stick in my mind. But, you know, maybe to kind of start things off, um, I, I, I want to kind of throw this out at you. Um, one of the, the quotes that you have uh, in one of your essays is from Cormac McCarthy. And uh, you quoted him saying that, uh, you know, books are made of other books. So um, one of the themes you have is this kind of uh, anxiety of influence of writers being aware of the writers that came before them, kind of a la Harold Bloom. And then also this idea of, you know, what piece of the author um, is is in a book of fiction. So, um you know, books are made of other books. Um, throwing that up back at you, uh, Greg. I mean, wh mm -hmm. what does that mean to you? Uh, well, I think it, it's it's just part and parcel of how um, 
writers write. It's just simply, uh, how do you learn to write? You read books and the, the books show you by, you know, directly or osmosis, how, how one should approach the writing problem and, and how, how far or how, um, how much, you know, they should really take you in, 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 in going through your process. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of the, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, writers today, to what extent are they looking over their shoulder at, at Henry James or, or Shakespeare? Um, I think that they should. And, and I, I'm not sure that, that all contemporary novelists are doing that. And I, and I think that's probably a whole different podcast that we could have about that. Um, but, but that's, I mean, I, I do a bit of writing myself and, and it's, it's, it's hard not to be aware of everything that's come before you. And I think you have to grapple with, you know, that legacy or, or, you know, the, the canon. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the writers clearly that you're obsessed with are, you know, Gaddis, Gas, um, uh, Nepal, um, Wallace Stevens. I mean, you can, you can see that you, uh, Henry James, you kind of circle back, um, to these writers and, um, uh, obviously an intimidating legacy, but, um, how, how do you, how do you incorporate these writers, but also kind of be true to yourself? Ooh, that's a tough yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the question of finding one's voice too. How do you, uh, take it all in and then kind of separate it? And I think it just takes years, years and years uh, of doing it and not necessarily writing, but, but just reading. I mean, that's the advice I've gotten from, from a lot of people, you know, gas, uh, VJ Shashadri, the poet, they just said you, you need to read everything. I mean, not everything, but enough and to, um, just so you have, you know, to know your history and like you, Robert, I do wonder about today's writers, you know, how much the, do they know their history? And I, I even wonder if it's possible to, to when you read someone, you can almost uh, know who they've read in their life. Yeah. Um, just, just by their sentences, their, their stories, um, you know, or their nonfiction. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. One, one, I'll just, just jump in here quickly. Just one of my, you know, one of my central, you know, writers that I turn to all the time is Gaddis. And, mm. and I, I love the fact that you refer to him. You you write about, I think there's at least three essays that you mm. actually specifically talk about Gaddis. But uh, you're talking about influencing, uh, being influenced by others and, and sort of having others thumbprint sort of on your work but Gaddis being Gaddis uh ended up you know cannibalizing like you put himself he um especially yes. in his later works he yes. as opposed to using you know Shakespeare or what whatnot he he's using his own earlier writings um to sort of propel things forward um 
So I really like that that you pointed out because Gaddis is you know, so generous. He's like this this unique kind of uh, writer. Though mm-hmm. the recognitions, this first book, my God, it's filled with other thumbprints. You know, it's and yes. thick references everywhere. Um, but again, as he goes forward with you know, Jr. and later, uh, he just starts using his own material, his own nonfiction that is doesn't mm-hmm. publish suddenly and ends up being in in um, in his books, his own fiction, you know, the, the play uh, from a frolic of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his own play that was never published that he uses as part of the plot. Um, so that's just wonderful to see Gaddis doing these uh, these kind of, uh, you know, somersaults with, with his own work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I'd kind of jump, jump in on that and sort of add is the reason I started with that you know, that Cormac McCarthy quote, which you highlighted was, you know, books are made of other books, but, you know, where is the self? And I know that this is something your essays kind of delve into. And in, in one of your essays, the self that did so much, and this is also about Gaddis, and, and uh, you referenced um, a biography of Gaddis by Joseph Tabby. Mm-hmm. And you, you quote a part where you try to understand, you know, where is the author where is Gaddis in his works? And it's a really intriguing sort of quote that I think we could spend a lot of time diving into. And it said, um, uh, Tabby says, in each of his books, Gaddis used highly autobiographical material to construct a, quote, compositional self, which I, I really like that term, specific to the aesthetic and technical problems he encountered during the writing, and I, and I assume of, of a specific book. So that's a really... I think astute and interesting sort of observation of how I think a true artist would use his own life. It, it, it's, uh, there, there's a subtlety there. There's a, um, uh, there's an adjustment based on the task at hand, which is what I really like in that. Yes. Yes. I, I think, um, and, and Gaddis said that himself too. He, he he called it the compositional self in in this interview, which I've been unable to find. Yeah, it's a published publisher's weekly interview, um, and it, it, it's kind of funny because he does use all that material, whereas Kotze, you know, he comes at this in a totally different way. He creates these characters and, and a lot of women uh, female narrators for his novels uh, and some set in the you know 1600s 1700s and Gaddises are they're they're all current they're all of the time mainly um, so I think in the books making other books you see well how did Gaddis do do it how did yeah. Coats they do it. How yep. did Naipaul do it? Yeah, and, and you, you try to like sort out what they're doing because I don't think you can get this in MFA classes. You know, with, with other people, that mm. this this has to. You really have to look at it in, as a writer, and you know whatever you need to do, you take notes. If you write in the in the book and, and just think about it. Like I guess Foster Wallace did that a lot, writing in the. There's been screenshots of his notes uh, mm. through all those books, oh, the, the, and all that. 
the marginalia. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so I, I should also point out that um, in addition to the book of essays that we're focusing on, "See What I See" by Greg Gerke, Greg is also uh, simultaneously published uh, a book of short stories called "Especially the Bad Things." So, um, you know, you have that traditional dichotomy of both being a purveyor of fiction and also a, a, a critic. And, um, you know, I, I grew up um, uh, in the 70s and 80s or the 80s kind of scrounging uh, copies of The New Yorker. And I, I first stumbled across John Updike kind of as a critic. And I, I think that um, he was an amazing reviewer of fiction. Um, I, I liked some of his fiction, uh, not all of it. But um, to me, you know, growing up, he was the epitome of like what a writing life could be. You know, he he had mm-hmm. this uh, uh, beautiful house on the North Shore of Boston and he spent his days, uh, you know, reviewing novels for The New Yorker. And then, you know, every five years putting out these big, big books that, you know, were made into movies. And, and oh, it seems like every year I mean, he, he was or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I. I don't know how much of that still goes on where, I mean, I'm just going to throw out a name like uh, uh, Jonathan Franzen or someone like that. I, I don't know if they actively review fiction or, or you know, Ben Lerner or Zadie Smith, Zadie Smith may, but uh-huh. these big authors who are also, you know, very, very active critics of their contemporaries. Right. Like, like gas was, or Ozick, yeah, still yeah, but that's the older generation, you know. We're yeah, trying to sort of like see what's going on nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know they're out there. None. I, I mean, almost every reviewer I can think of is is a writer, uh, in some respect. You know, the reviewers for the London Review of Books, or yes, yes. The, you, you, what I think what's changed also is you hardly know any people who are. I'm only a reviewer. It, yeah. It's it's all you're you're double pronged in some yeah. way. I mean, and, I guess there's, there's people yeah. like uh, Stephen Moore who doesn't really write, but yet he's kind of a god to me as far as yes. uh, pointing out you know good things to read. He's not a, particularly a reviewer; he's just sure. an independent scholar. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, but he doesn't. Who write. had his hand in many? <laughs> yes. <laughs> had yes. his hand I mean, in Infinite Jest and Alexander sure Theroux's I mean, books. He, is involved with Gaddis. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, yeah. He's, he, I think... I think we, he, at one point we should probably do a whole episode on just Stephen Moore because he's mm. fascinating. His we should probably interview him, too. Incredible. <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you had a chance to look at his history of the novel, uh, uh, Doorstoppers? No, nah, <laughs> I, I mean, I've too? seen it. I've seen them stopping doors, but I haven't... <laughs> uh, I have his other books... The multiple ones on Gaddis and the one that came out a few years ago that collected uh, a lot of his reviews, right? My back pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's doing a, a new book. He told me on uh, the later novels of Alexander Theroux now. Oh, nice! I think you know what? I, mean? I can't find any to... copies. I can't find any freaking copies in my library. In the New York Public Library, yeah, I guess the New York Public Library does have copies, but it's a little too far for me to travel to get those. Of but Theroux? Alexander Theroux, I just is just not. You can't find copies of his books. It's it's a scandal. Yes, you know. Well, 
I think he he kind of likes it that way. From what <laughs> I remember, really, <laughs> his bookworm interview, they 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 talk about that where oh, you kind gosh. of invite. You're glad your books are out of print, right? And he says, "Well, uh, kind of, yeah." <laughs> And I mean, this was 20 years ago. But, right. Uh, I remember I remember that interview. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But who, yes, who, I mean, Darkenville's cat. Oh, I who, just don't want to read that. I can't find a copy. Oh, I'll, I'll loan you mine. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the Strand will have it outside in the I've dollar looked, rack. I've looked at the okay. Strand and I, I, I came out empty, so. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can go through Powell's here in Portland, Roman, maybe. Oh, please, please. Yeah, because I, yeah. I really want to, actually, Theroux is, is one of those writers that I've been meaning to read uh, for for years now. And I've, every time I want to read him, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't find a copy and something gets in the way and I forget about it. And then I'm like, well, he's still there. He's still there. Yes. The um, Greg, you, you seem to have a um, uh, an Oregon uh, connection. And were, were you in Portland in November quite recently? Uh, no, I, Oh, was that, cause I noticed there was a November reading at, uh, <laughs> at, uh, Foucault's here in Portland. Was that like I, a year ago? That's uh, many years ago now. I have not <laughs> updated my event, that, events. I think that was 2015 actually. Okay. When I, the book that is now, especially the bad things came out as its original title. Oh, so uh, my, it came out like four years ago. It was, yes, it was reprinted for in the British version and it has four added stories. Um, but yeah, Cheston Knapp, the former Tin House editor. He lived in, I'm sure he still lives in Portland, but I, I did live in Eugene for many, many years, uh, in the early two thousands. So did you go to the university? I I did finish there. I I transferred and finished, uh, in, 2000. Yeah. Cool. Um, You know, uh, there was an interesting uh, article recently, which I think kind of ties into some of the the various strains here we're getting at. It was in the New York Times magazine, and it was a review of um, Ben Lerner's new uh, book, The Topeka School, which um, I know Roman and I both are planning. I I read read most of it already. You did? Yeah. 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 and so there was a, a, a section that was very, very interesting um, regarding autofiction. And I think this might help the discussion in terms of um, reviewing or lack of reviewing these days. And, and one of the things it says is that um, it talks about these, these novels that tried to say something, you know, universal about the United States, you know, these sort of, I I call it kind of the everything novel. And I've written a bit about it, a novel that really tries to sum up the zeitgeist. Um, Mm. You know, you can say that uh, Don DeLillo underworld um, Mm. tried to do that, or even Jonathan Franzen's the corrections. And so um, the writer here says that, you know, these kind of novels enjoyed a prestige and cultural centrality that in recent years have come to seem distinctly suspect. Looking increasingly through the lens of identity, some critics have begun to see the universalizing impulse behind such books, their belief in their ability to write across differences of race and class and gender as presumptuous, if not outright aggressive. And the writer um, who I should credit here, this was written by uh, Gills Harvey, I think then does a, a nice job of of saying this is where kind of autofiction has come in. This, this uh, uh, book or novel that 
kind of says, there's no way that I could try to explain much beyond my own existence, a kind of humble mm. humility, you know, ah, shucks, I'm, I'm just me and my experiences, and I will take you through them. Um, mm. And he, you know, he cites um, Ben Lerner's novel, Leaving the Atocha Station, um, which I loved as a, you know, an example of that, and also um, Sheila Hetty, I believe mm. is the way you pronounce it. I haven't read her novels, but I mean, I'm wondering if writers now aren't as worried about the books that have come before. I think they are they are zeroed in on their own subjective experience. And, you know, readers today um, maybe have become accustomed to expecting nothing more than you know, a really dialed in uh, microscopic view based on someone's particular identity, age, gender, sexuality, um, geographic location. Um, and these books are quite interesting, but I, I feel like when you really get wrapped up with the writers you're concerned with and, you know, add in Joyce and Proust and Henry James, that it just gets hard to to keep the scope of a novel or a work of art so narrow and and I don't know if I'm doing a great job but I but I think I'm just trying to throw some stuff out there do you mean narrow it to to read it to experience it or um... I, I I almost think that the the writer has set up certain blinders and saying, I cannot attempt to universalize too far beyond my own experiences um, mm. because it would almost get into issues of politics in a way that I would be I would be trespassing on on areas that I I know nothing about. Um, mm. I I disagree with that. I think the the fiction writer has a complete license to write about anyone and anything, a kind of freedom that uh, is cannot be questioned. Um, but I but I know that that's uh, maybe a particular idiosyncratic view I have. <laughs> no, I mean I I fully agree with you. I think it is. It's definitely about political correctness <laughs> yeah yeah this that word that probably didn't want to bring into this but um it's so 90s greg <laughs> <laughs> that's what bloom was, i mean harold bloom was uh, ranting and raving uh, on this point for many this, years right this and he suffered resentment. From, dude, he, boy he got attacked viciously when the, the western canon came out do you remember that sure. he just uh, oh, it yes. was a serration yeah yes. But, but I right. mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, but our imaginations, I think, are at stake because yeah. if yes. you can't imagine these things, you know, how can you write shackled? I mean, the, then you're going against, say, the, the Gordon Lish school, you know, what scares you, write about what scares you, write about your biggest secret. And if you can't get in there and do that, it, it does it does seem that some writers might be like, 
walking with kind of a, a broken leg and you can even you can feel it in the writing that they're just not something's holding them back and i know a lot of things are holding a lot of people back yeah. uh, with the political environment we're in and uh, but i think the imagination is at stake and yeah. and how wallace stevens i mean he wrote a book of essays mainly about how our imaginations make us live the necessary angel uh, it's called a, a group of seven or eight essays uh, with the first one being the noble rider and the sound of words which is actually just about how our imagination how the poet and the imagination behind the uh, poetry fuels us fuels us i mean he also in a way he he kind of goes against the Auden thing of poetry doesn't make anything happen. He believes, yes, poetry can better us and and save us in, in some ways. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. No, this well, Greg, is good. Greg, you, you open your book of essays with um, a kind of a, uh, a nod towards nature and your relationship with nature and how it sort of came hand in hand with your beginning relationship with books mm. and i'm wondering you know just to continue this topic with uh by all accounts what's happening to nature nowadays which seems to be a diminishment of it um some sort of a closing in um do you think maybe that has something to do with our our our, our the the sort of shackles or the imagination you know the, the limited imagination that we seem to be experiencing that because we have this incredibly abundant natural world around us that always gave writers and, and really any creative people or just regular people really this this kind of life force mm -hmm. is now seems to be it now seems to be this garden hose has been stepped on it's, it seems to be less flow it's a clogged artery right uh, of our connection to nature uh, and so uh you know lacking a means to create a bypass surgery or anything like that maybe that seems to be driving this weird um kind of a closing off these blinders um to the imagination or at least you know to mm -hmm. a part of it um uh, to to this infinity because really it's infinity that's being closed in now now we find ourselves in a finite mm. kind of world we suddenly realize wait a second this could all end it's not just it's not just talk it's not just some weird science fiction idea right but it's actually happening <laughs> Yes, you know, and it's, so it's it's both uh, mind blowing and it's terror, terror, just completely terrorizing to our imaginations, and maybe our imaginations are stepping back a little bit and cowering. I mean, I don't know. Right. Just well, about that. well, media and social media and the texting and the internet. I mean, well, yeah. When people yeah. are all doing that, yeah. you know, you you just don't see people. People are just you know, standing around on their phones when they're hiking the mountain, you know, they're right. just, if they get enough service, they can tweet the picture of the mountaintop. So <laughs> we're so concentrated on, on, on this. And now, you know, living in New York is much different than living in Oregon where you could get in the car and yeah. be in the mountains in 30 minutes or yep. at the ocean an hour. Yep. Uh, but the the internet you know for all the all the goods there, there's a lot of ills and and you know I, 
I saw the best and worst minds of my generation destroyed <laughs> by social media. <laughs> That's I, I feel this every day. Yeah, uh, yeah. seeing things and and how tweets are used in in articles about everything. Uh, you know, politics to celebrity gossip and celebrity worship, yeah. which which has to be another cog of this too. It's, it's not just politics, though. I saw that article you <laughs> tweeted about uh, the insanity of, of of drenching ourselves in politics. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always, I've had that. Uh, I've been thinking along those lines for years now because I you just, have, I, yeah. I'm a bit of an outsider. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. I, I am an American, but I don't. You know, I'm. Uh, you know, Russian, Israeli, America. I mean, I, I came from out out there, and I remember having this feeling. And Rob and I have talked about this for years. When you're outside of a country, looking into it, it's very different from what you see once you live in the country. It's very different from the you know, you don't have the same perspective. You don't have this pedestal, this kind of way of stepping back and looking at it because you're right in the middle of it. And so it seems like it seems like we're right in the middle of this, and we can't see our way out of it. You know, it's kind of this echo chamber, uh, and even though we have all these wonderful tools, social media connects us to people in Cairo and you know, mm -hmm. in Somalia, and you know, we have all these connections. But yet, um, they're not—I shouldn't say superficial—but they're definitely not the kind of connections that make you write poetry. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. but. And also attention. I mean, I, I've mm. been talking to my older brother. He's um, he's now uh, close to his you know 60s, and he said that he hasn't read a book in a long, long time. He has no attention span for it because he's so used to reading things online. Mm. So whenever he opens a book, even it might be an ebook, even you know, he just just loses it after five, five, ten minutes. It just has no ability to maintain that concentration. Yeah. Um, and you know, with, with the passing of Harold Bloom, I was just um, watching one of his um, or listening one of one of his uh, older interviews. You know, this guy could ingest a 400 book in an hour, 400 page book in an hour. Um, this, the amount of concentration and memory. I mean, he was obviously not your average person to begin with. Sure. But um, nowadays, it seems to be even more and more uh, difficult to get into this long attention span that you need um, in order to enjoy a book, you know, especially yes. uh, a classic book, for instance, not just, you know, a thriller or something like that. Yeah. Mm. So we, yeah. we lost that ability and we're losing it more and more. And uh, I don't know where that's going. I really don't know. Yeah, you know, um, I think Jonathan Franzen said that he, um, he has a, a, a computer where he has um, you know, stuffed, uh, this was probably a while ago, but, you know, stuffed gum into the USB port of his computer. And he said, no one can write serious fiction on a machine that's connected to the internet. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to these things, but there is some, some truth to it. I, I've actually had to resort to, um, there's an app called the Freedom App, which um, I think a lot uh, of writers... Your, yeah. Line is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, one way to try to, you know, kind of turn off the noise. I I worry about the same thing myself. And um, I was actually on vacation uh, in New Hampshire um, this last week and with uh, my uncle up in the White Mountains. And I was able to um, kind of prove to myself that once I'm away from the insanities of, you know, job and this and that, I was able to do some 
some serious reading. And it, it's so rewarding. I'm actually reading this uh, massive Hungarian novel by Peter Nadas called Parallel Stories. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's huge. And um, he's more well known for a book called um, The Book of Memories. But um, it's it's a book that's just almost impossible to read around the margins of a nine to five job, which I have uh, an office job. And, um, mm. and it's so frustrating because I, I, I just need blocks and blocks of time mm. to do it. Um, and those are just harder to come by. Um, but Greg, I, I'm sure Greg, what are your, can. what are your reading habits? How do you, how do you yeah. read usually? Do you read oh. on, online? I mean, I mean like with a ebook type of situation. No, oh, no, I, I don't read well online. And if Me it's, mm. if it's something really serious, I'll, I'll print it out Yeah, yeah to read too. it that way. And, uh, I know I don't give things a good read. Um, you know, if a, a friend's article comes out, it's, uh, I know I'm, I, I'm jumping ahead and I'm skimming in and out of mm, the yes. reading and, um, and also with the attention span, the same thing. I, I've, I've just been veering in and out of many different things, uh, for some time. I'm not one of those, I'll read one book and go all the way to the end and then go to the next book. I, I'm. Const and I think this it's probably not a good thing to Well, I don't know about the way that's that's out. um Walt Whitman had that habit. He would have, mm. you know, five, six books around his bed or around his reading chair and he would pick one up and read that for five, ten minutes and then put that down and pick another book up. Yeah. So I think it really depends on, on how you process and how your mind works. As long as you're reading. <laughs> right. You know, the problem is that people Take something for five, ten minutes, and then they put it down, and they just don't come back to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I do too. I, I, I'm guilty of the same thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, in one of your essays, Greg, you, you, uh, you don't shy away from taking on the the really big topics. And there's an essay uh, at the beginning called "On Influence," which um, uh, is a fine essay, and. One of the things you do is is talk about um, not necessarily defining art, but you have an interesting paragraph that explains um, maybe what art can do for us. And, and you write, we love certain types of art because they challenge us and make us happy or maybe angry. They frustrate and disturb. They move us to stray from the path of our preconceived harmony. Their beauty tugs at us to step outside the familiar aura of the smiley face quotidian we often engage each other and the world with with i, I think gets to some of what we're kind of sure. critiquing here with social media i i would even i would add uh to that and i would say that i think we love art because it's so rare to meet someone who who sticks doggedly to their view of the world and and kind of refuses to compromise or or um or dumb it down a little bit and it may be beautiful but it may not um the the novel i just re referenced peter nadas parallel stories he has this quite frankly this this fascination with bodily fluids there's no other way to say it in in all of its variety and th there's some beautiful passages describing Berlin and um, and uh, Budapest and you know architecture, but but he's also very fascinated with 
the bodily fluids of various characters. And he goes to depths that kind of shock me. Um, <laughs> but, but I get such a, a specific, unique take on the world that I haven't found anywhere else. And, and that's what, that's what really excites me. Um, and, you know, you write about, uh, Bergman, the great, the great filmmaker. Um, and I, and I get the same from him. Um, yes, he never shies away from anything. Yeah. He goes right at it. And, and I often always don't want him to go there, Mm. but he will, you know, like you, you, um, you write about, uh, Fanny and Alexander, um, 1983, one of his oh, I love that movie. later film. And, and Roman, you introduced that to me when we were. We were well, you know, I, I just just like with books and I'm sorry, Greg, I'll, I'll let you speak in a second. Just just like with books, it's so for me, it's um, sometimes makes a crucial difference as the context of when of when and how I read this book or watch this film. So with with Fanny and Alexander, I had a very unique experience where I was. Um, teaching this young composer how to drive. Uh, my parents kind of uh, used our, their house as a as a way to promote this young composer as uh, Lyra Auerbach, you, you met her, Rob. Yeah. She's now actually a big time composer. She's had uh, pieces uh, at Lincoln Center and at, uh, you know, mm. she's, she's, she's an internationally recognized composer. Anyway, so, so I was teaching how to, how to drive and then one day we decided to go into New York from New Jersey where, where, you know, we were living and, um, we went to the village and we saw Fanny and Alexander in this funky little playhouse uh, with people serving coffee there and drinking beer right in the theater. It was wonderful. So I had this experience with her, with this very highly creative person. And I remember as the movie ended and we we exited the, the theater and got into the car, we just were silent. We just looked at each other like, what did we just see? What, <laughs> yeah. we, it was just a, a right. magical... We were just in the magic, magic land. We were just in this weird uh, art space that lingered. You know, we, we got stopped by the cops on the way back because my headlight wasn't working. And, and all of that is just etched into my memory mm. because of this film. Not because of this, you know, I went to a movie with, with a nice young creative person. Not because of that. It's just because of this film that I remember all these details and how it affected me. Um, mm. You know, so... I think the context of when and how you experience of work of art is supremely important. Yeah, which we I can't totally, control. Yeah, accidental to- can't control it. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, and I know you've you guys have talked about this on other shows, and I think it's great how you talk about you know your experiences with these books, and and how I think this circles back to the the question of our, how it brings people together you know, in literal and unconscious ways. Mm. And, and I think that's one of the questions in the in the book as well. Um, you know, I often talk about, you know, I saw the, the Bergman this time, or I, I saw mm. Sachi Trey this time. Uh, that one didn't make it in the book, but uh, when you, when I go to a review, a review, I'm not looking for a plot recap. I'm looking for yeah. what some what the work of art did to someone's soul. Yep. Mm. And so, you know, when you guys talk about books, that's that's the experience I'm getting. But with a lot of reviewers, you know, Anthony Lane in the New Yorker would be one. I I don't know what this guy. You know, it's it's very smug. It's all in the head. I don't like it. 
Uh, but it's all upstairs. There's very yeah. little downstairs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's saying he said. I guess he said the Irishman is is wild strawberries with handguns. <laughs> I mean, please. That's nice for a little chuckle, but what you yeah. what is it? I think yeah. that's what he was going for. He was going for the chuckle yeah. as opposed right. to the, the, the real stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if we can, it, you know, that's why there's book clubs and, and there's still this vital interest in, in bringing us together because the art makes us, is a time travel element. So it's like we're traveling through our past, mm. you know, as the art goes on, we start to read our own book. Or, or so Naipaul would say, um, you know, about, about th this came from Wayne Booth, the implied narrator of novels that the reader constructs while they're Which, reading. Which, by the way, it's also important for Gaddis, Wayne Booth, very yes. important for Gaddis. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it, it, art is, is so magical. I, I think sometimes we, we don't even know what it's doing on so many levels. You know, you, you read a a sentence of Virginia Woolf, and you have these clicks in in your in your mind. You you, you go back yeah. to your past within the same sentence. Like you know, you go to 1993, then you go to something else with your mother when you were young, and it's just amazing. And yeah. you know, if we can talk about books like that, yeah, it's you really get somewhere. I I love the idea of the uh, a click in your mind. Um, and, and, you know, we, one of the really interesting things about just doing this podcast is it, I, my experience of the online literary world was mostly writing essays, submitting them to sites like the millions or that. And, and this is, you know, as you know, you've written for them. These are, these are sites with, you know, mostly aspiring writers, people who want to write novels or are writing novels, or mm -hmm. there's an aspirational element there. And these are all you know, literary people, whatever that means in 2019. But the really interesting thing about this podcast is it connected us. The people who listen to us are not writers. They are readers. And it really opened up this whole book Twitter. Um, mm. And it is incredible the amount of people who are who still find the magic. Who, yes. who didn't take theory classes, you know, at the university, but had these passionate, intimate, and very sophisticated relationships with, with, with books, many of them, you know, very, very, in some cases, difficult books. Um, and it's really brought me back to like, you know, what's, what's really important. Um, I mean, I think trying to be somebody who has a, uh, you know, historical and educated view of 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 what's come before us. I, I I think that's important. But yeah, I mean, Fanny and Alexander. Why it works for me is the first third of that movie is from the perspective of those two children um, in that family, and I it reminds me of the magic of being a child around the holidays and climbing underneath the table and listening to the adults on Christmas Eve talking or whatever it is. And, and uh, it's the magic of that. It reminds me of the magic in the beginning of um, uh, Proust and uh, when young Marcel is in Combray and he's upstairs in the bedroom waiting for his mother to tuck him in. Um, there's the magic of being a child, um, which I miss, you know, and I think more adults could use a bit of the magic in their life. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
It's like, well, it's like, um, it's the feeling, you know, the feeling part of the feeling bookish, which is, you know, when we yeah. named the, the podcast, it was kind of, a, you know, we just kind of thought of it quickly and, oh, feeling bookish sounds good. But it's actually, I keep coming back to that in the podcast because, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, worldviews. How do we view, you know, to these, to these total views of how do we view the world? Well, I think I think it's not the best way of do of sort of putting that because because feeling is left out. I think what is the there's a German word I, I'm sure they're going to mispronounce it. Uh, Weltachung. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but everybody knows this word. Weltachung. Yeah, the worldview is usually translated that, but the translation is missing it because a part of it is uh, refers to feeling. So how do you not only view the world, but how do you feel the world? And that, and that's what you refer to as magic, Rob. Uh, I think yeah. this, the, these these feelings are not there, and I really I can't stress this enough. They're not expressible. Mm. They're not expressible in language. That's why language is so um, problematic for a lot of writers and philosophers. Um, and it's not. It's it's a little bit closer, maybe, with music because the music really does play on your feelings, and also maybe in movies and uh, films like. I don't know if you have you guys seen um, "Hard to Be a God" by Alexei German. I haven't. Uh, no. no, it's a 2013 Russian science fiction film uh, <laughs> based on uh, the Strugatsky brothers' a book by the same name, "Hard oh, to Be yeah. a God," uh, and it's considered a masterpiece. I um, I don't know if I will suggest that you find it and, and watch it because it's extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily hard to watch. Uh, because, and this also brings us back to the bodily fluids that we talked about earlier, because there's so many bodily fluids in this book. It's disgusting. I mean, the book, in the movie, it's disgusting. It's absolutely horribly uh, nasty and disgusting on purpose, though. I mean, it has to be there because that's that's what the book is all about. You know, it's about basically visiting on a far planet, this society that's very, very medieval in its development. And these astro astronauts that are visiting are considered gods, you know, so it's hard to be a god. Um, but the feeling that you get watching this movie is is really quite extraordinary. It's not just disgust, it's um, it's beyond disgust. And I can't, I can't really um, express it, uh, you know, in language because you have to actually watch it to get that mm. feeling. Um, so that feeling that this this magical feeling that we get that's kind of somewhere between words in books and novels and stories it's somewhere in between it's something that a writer is able to create yeah. uh as a total thing but there's nothing that you can specifically point to and say there it is yeah you know uh -huh. it's this kind of this, this this web of words that kind of creates whatever the space between the web is what i'm getting trying to get at yeah, it's yeah. the click in your mind. I, I like that. Uh -huh. I'm stealing what, that, Greg. What, what makes a window very useful? It's kind of a Zen thing. But what's what yeah. makes a window very useful? Nothing. Yeah. It's the emptiness. You know, it's the right. stuff that's missing. Um, so I think that's what's it's that's what I'm kind of driving at with the with this feeling thing. I think it's so important, and that I think we are we are very much doing ourselves a disservice by neglecting these things, neglecting these feelings and just going for the head for the, you know, what's this book about? Or let's analyze it. Let's, you know, let's take it apart and see how it all fits together. But when you do that, you really miss that. You miss that space that's created by the totality, that, that emptiness that you. And, 
you know, I, I'd ask I'd ask you, Greg, uh, with with that and as as somebody who writes fiction, um, mm -hmm. the tendency when you're reading, uh, say, a short story, do you find yourself also reading as a writer, where you start, you know, observing the structure? Okay, this writer did this. He's he's making choices about X Y Z. Is that something that that you can turn off as a reader, or is the writer mind always, you know, looking at the the uh, scaffolding of a piece of fiction. I think it's there, always there now. It didn't yeah. used to be because yeah. I didn't. I, I knew so little for so many years, and then uh, um, it, it just uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to separate it. But I yeah. mean, there are times when you you come at something that's so alien, like like one of Eudora Welty's stories, which mm. is kind of this phantasmagora around the civil war i forget the name of the of the of the thing but it's so it's like you're walking into a ghost house or or, or something yeah. um but uh the, yeah the feeling speak what we feel not what we ought to say shakespeare uh that that's that's such an important thing that you're you're underlining uh in this podcast and and yes how do we get out that, of the mind it's funny that we can't we can't really ever get to it we can only circle around right. it well you know? well well what is i mean uh what was ludwig uh wittgenstein what was the summation right of the well that's the, yeah well uh, we cannot the, speak about we must uh, pass over in silence yeah, yeah. but that, yes. that was the end of his sort of first period and then he kept on speaking and speaking <laughs> <laughs> in fact, philosophical investigations is you know, this 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 second half of you know, the, the the later Wittgenstein yeah. is where he really he really repudiates his earlier saying and 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 it goes in a slightly you know actually very different direction. Yeah, um, but it, that's a line that's been quoted often. Sure. Yeah, and, it's intriguing. You know, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Have you um, read Jillian uh, Rose's Love's Work? This no. nonfiction book. No. Because talking about bodily fluids, <laughs> I mean, but sh this is this should be as popular, uh, you know, as Barth's camera Luc Lucinda. Lucinda yeah. uh, it's it's this very very short book, a hundred pages. She was a kind of a philosopher, a British philosopher, a Hegel expert, and oh. she died of cancer. And she wrote this book called Love's Work when Jillian she was Rose? dying. Yeah, with a G, with a G, mm -hmm. uh, and she uh, had to get a colostomy bag, and she describes that in quite detail. Mm. That that uh, it, it's really something. Love's work. It's a, It was just the New York Review of Books re-released it a few years ago. Yeah. It's only like a hundred pages or so. Right. Really something. Yeah, you noted. I'll yeah, it's it a great, great imprint. Um, their books are always so, so excellent. Yes, um, but it reminds one of, of, of we need more of the human, like you were yeah. saying, uh, like a Patrick White novel. It's yeah. so much about bodily fluids. Uh, I wonder what if it's even, if, sorry, if, I wonder if it's even more relevant because of uh, our turn towards the machine in the past 50 years or so. Everything seems to be a machine metaphor. Right. You know, we seem to be slaves to this. <laughs> you know, we, we love all of our toys, but they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're listening to us. They're using us. They're, we, we're being used by them. It's, we're using them. It's just this weird relationship with, with the 
technology and, and the non-human that we have that we seem to have placed an emphasis on the non-human and for our own detriment seems like and kubrick nailed it in 1968 he he saw everything he saw what we'd be doing we'd be sitting eating food while we're you know watching a youtube video really mm -hmm. yeah in 2001 mm. it's it, yeah um i i want to ask one last thing we're starting to mm -hmm. uh but up against our our usual one hour here. And I, I'd be remiss if I let you go, Greg, without asking you about, you were able to interview um, Gass, William Gass. Yeah. So very few of us, you know, get the chance of, I don't know, meeting our heroes, I suppose. And and, and I'd also have to say that, you know, his, his uh, initial uh, quip to you was, you know, being interviewed isn't good for the soul. So <laughs> I, I, I hope we haven't, you know, done any damage to you, but um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I think people might find it, you know, fascinating. How, how did that come about, and 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 what was the the context for that? Well, I I knew another friend that had interviewed him, and uh, I just kept kept reading uh, in the 2010, 2011. And the obsession grew, and I thought, well, you, you know, you've got to do this. I think Hugh Kenner. Uh, you know, heard from Ezra Powell, you have to go and meet the great men in yeah. or great people. For for Ezra Pound, it was men. Ezra Pound went to meet Henry James and Yates. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Gas would 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 have been one of them that were still alive. And uh, so I just he I took the opportunity. His, he did it. Yeah, I wrote awesome. to his agent, and then I flew. Uh, heard from him on email and I flew out to St. Louis and wow. I sat with him for a few hours in the morning and a few hours in the afternoon. And it was, it was stunning to, yeah. to be there too in his library of a house, you know, there's 30 or 40,000 books nice. uh, in this big house near Washington university in St. Louis. And to be doing this, to be feeling bookish and, and talking mm. about all these things. And of course, he was a philosophy professor. So he would be talking about Bachelard and, and I didn't, I didn't know what, <laughs> anything about Bachelard. At that I, time. I, I, I discovered <laughs> Bachelard just a few years ago and I just swallowed, swallowed his books. Wonderful. Mm. I, oh. I hope we can talk about that sometime. Mm. And he gave me, I mean, when it was transcribed, he gave me a, a whole, a single, a one page, single spaced answer, just mm -hmm. talking about the, uh, the poetics of, uh, is that no, not space or the politics of no, or the poetics of no mm -hmm. describing bachelard. And, you know, to, to think that you're in the, you're sitting with the, the, the man who, who wrote the tunnel mm. and who, was on in a Wittgenstein class uh -huh. at Cornell. Wow! Yeah, amazing. Because uh, he wrote a, a little remembrance of him <laughs> in his first uh, nonfiction book. So it was, it was quite an experience. I mean, it'd be nice to meet maybe Kotze, but I, I, I think he's kind of, <laughs> he's not one to be met. He's, he's reclusive, as they yes. say. Yeah. Yes. Say, uh, and he's, a, he's, he's also in Australia somewhere, or maybe he left already. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> but I, I had a similar experience, Greg. I mean, I, I, um, 
one of my uh, sort of early heroes was Raymond Smullyan. He's a, he was a philosopher and mm. a mathematician and magician and musician, very wonderful character, wrote a bunch of books, um, nonfiction books. Um, but I, uh, at one point about 10 years ago, so I, I was thinking, of course, he's dead, you know, because he was old when I was young. <laughs> and then I found out that he wasn't. And I, I, I with, the, with the encouragement of a friend, I, I emailed him and got a response. And we basically became friends. And it was really wonderful. I knew him for the last two, three years of his life. Wow. And it was just a one. I mean, if I hadn't done that, I would have been that much poorer. So I'm just so glad that you took this, you know, you screwed up. I'm sure it took some courage to <laughs> to ask for an interview. A little bit, yes. yeah. <laughs> So, but and I, didn't, but I, I didn't want to bother him after right. the, the interview. I didn't want to email him too much, right. you know, because he was in his almost 90 and uh, mm. he needed his rest and not to be bothered by right. my my softball questions about R.P. Blackmore or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's it's heartening to hear you say that you, you know, you were aware of this this tradition and you wanted to do it. It makes me think of. Um, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso, when they first went to France in whatever it was, the late 50s, they immediately sought out Jean Genet and also That's Celine. Me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's that, um, uh, you know, that like, kind of the, the mentoring aspect, too. I mean, or, yeah, you're always or looking the for passing the master, on. Right? You're yeah. looking right. for the master, as yeah. you say. He's the master. So you, you want to you meet the master. You know, you want to. You want yep. to be close to that. You want to see what's going on over there, you know, because yeah. it's. Yeah, you kind of do your own MFA. I don't have an MFA, but, yeah. you know, you you do your own course in this kind of self self-taught. You, I mean, you have to follow your nose, you, whatever your nose leads you mm -hmm. to. I mean, that's that's been my sort of guiding principle is my my literary nose, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Your instincts. You know, mm -hmm. Greg, you, you say that, um, uh, you know, Gaddis did a bit of teaching in a writing program, but his his focus was on, quote, creative reading as opposed to mm -hmm. creative writing. And I, right. I, I think right. that's fantastic. Um, well, we, we've kind of reached the end no. of our conversation. Um, and it's oh, this, been, was, this was great. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I, I feel, you know, I feel privileged. Keep that, going. Uh, I wanted you, to talk to you about Mike Lee. Um, yeah. It's funny because you just mentioned Hugh Kenner, and I, I have this book of um, of his, the the, the counterfeiters, yes, uh, yes, with drawings by Guy Davenport, yes. who is in your essay about Mike Lee, who's is mm -hmm. my actually not one of my, but my favorite living directors. Oh, Mike incredible! Oh, wow. Um, so I, I we could talk for for hours. Well, let's yeah. talk after the. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. And and I and I think it's fair to say that um, you have an open invitation to come back on the podcast. Um, you know, so so please okay. do and come back and update us uh, on on what you've been reading and writing. Um, Thank you very much. This yeah. Is wonderful show you have here. Thank I'm you. Very awesome. glad you do it. Yeah. Well, um, that wraps it up. And uh, again, a great conversation. And uh, just as a reminder, um, you can always follow Roman on Twitter, at um, Zenju. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Robert Fay one And uh, please go to uh, greggerke.com uh, to find out more about Greg. And, and Greg, you're on Twitter as well, and your Twitter handle is? Yes, I... <sighs> I, I don't know exactly. It's uh, 
Hold on a second. I could look it up. Yeah, we, we could probably quickly find Greg it here. Gerke. Well, we can actually maybe put some information on our page or something. Yeah. Totally. Um, Absolutely. It's it's at Greg underscore Gerke. There you That's go. That's what it is. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, so please follow Greg and keep up with what he's doing. And get get his essays. Get this book of essays. I think yeah. it's, there's so much there. It's really – it's not just your straightforward writing. It's very, uh, very good writing. So it's it doesn't come at – it doesn't come at the subject directly, which is the right thing to do. Um, uh, so it's it will make you think. It will it will expand your reading your list to be read yeah. list for sure. Yeah. And also the short. I, I really enjoyed the short stories. Before we go, I, I must say I really enjoyed some of the short stories that that I was able to read. Um, they're quirky. They're interesting. Um, Thank so you. that's also, I mean, you know, there's few writers who do that kind of stuff. So please go out and, and seek out Greg Greg's books because you will enjoy them for sure. And Greg, and Greg, where is the best platform for someone to go in to buy your books? Uh, d directly to the Splice uh, website. Mm. You can buy them there. You could buy them at another place, you know, that has a one-word title that we won't name. No, but, we won't name. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. So, so please go to um, this is splice dot co dot uk. Uh, and so again, this is the um, the press. They are in uh, the UK, I believe, in Birmingham. So please go and check that out. Well, thanks everybody. It's been fun, and uh, we'll talk next time. See you, Roman. See you. Bye. Thank and you, thank Roman you, Heston and Roman. 